Well, here I am. It's the 4th of July, and everyone's forgotten about me, but that's all right. They can go see the fireworks, but I'm talking about the fire! <laughs> Shut up in my bones! Hey. So, um, today we're talking about the section of the Creed uh, that talks about the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And, um, yeah, it's actually a very short section of the Creed. Uh, ironically, I left in my notes uh, my question from when I taught on the Son, which said, why is this section in the Creed so long? That probably made absolutely no sense, because the section in the Creed is not long at all. Is actually very short. I think it's the shortest part in the Apostolic Creed, maybe. I haven't done all the stuff for that. But let me pray for me and for all of you who are going to be listening afterward, and uh, then I will jump into the lesson. So um, let's come before the Lord in prayer. Father God, I thank you for your word, and moreover, I thank you for your spirit, without whom um, understanding of anything in your word would be impossible. And so he is a precious gift. His ministry is a precious gift. And we thank you that you sent your precious son to purchase all the workings of the Holy Spirit for us. We thank you that the gift of God in your son, your gift in your son, has been made complete in us by the uh, giving of your spirit. And we pray that we would live lives that are conformed by him into the image of your Son, unto the praise of your glorious grace. It is through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, that we pray all of these things. One God forever and ever. Amen. So first I thought it would be helpful to just start with a church history lesson to try kind of give the background of this section of the Creed because I'm mainly going to be teaching not from the Apostles' Creed, um, but from the Nicene Creed, and actually not even the Nicene Creed, but the um, Constantinopolitan Creed. Um, and the issue as to why uh, this part is so short is because um, the church, up until the middle of the 4th century, simply assumed um, who the Holy Spirit was and what the Holy Spirit did. Uh, there was no controversy about the Holy Spirit. I have um, heard a lot of arguments that Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims will make, and they will say, well, Christians didn't really figure out the personality of the Holy Spirit, or they didn't figure out that the Holy Spirit was God until the Council of Constantinople in, I think it was 381. And that's simply not true. Um, the section that says that the Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life, he's also worshipped and glorified, um, all of that, that was added um, about the same time, well, it was added after the section that added to, I believe in God the Father Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth. At the Council of Nicaea, they added up all things visible and invisible. But that doesn't mean that uh, Christians up until 325 did not believe that God the Father made all things visible and invisible. It's simply that that had not been argued. It was simply assumed, and so it did not have to be clarified. And it was not until uh, what we call the Macedonian controversy or the semi-Aryan controversy uh, that happened in Spain that the church thought that it would be necessary to define what they believed about the Holy Spirit. Because in 325 at the Council of Nicaea, the church was embroiled with a battle against what's called Arianism. And Arianism is the doctrine put forth by Arius of Alexandria. Um, he began preaching at his church in Alexandria that there was a time when the sun was not, that the type that the excuse me the sun was a creature uh, created by God, the first creature of God and the most exalted creature of God to the point that he is godlike, but that he is not true and eternal deity. And his teachings began to spread across the church nationwide, and Constantine, and Constantine, the emperor of the Byzantine Empire. Um, called all of the bishops together at Nicaea in 325 uh, to sort out this issue because he saw that it was a threat to the church. And he also, I think, thought that the church uh, was going to be an advantageous um, uh, force in unifying his empire. And so he kind of used 
I think, the church as a political clout. And so the church uh, hashed out these things, and they were engrossed in the subject of what is the relationship between the Father and the Son. And so they hashed all of those things out in what we would later have in the Creed about the Son being consubstantial with the Father and all of that. But they did not define um, who the Holy Spirit of who excuse me who the Holy Spirit was the role of the Holy Spirit, the operations of the Holy Spirit, they simply said, we believe in the Holy Spirit, because no one had yet voiced any dissenting opinion about what Christians believed about the Holy Spirit until, um, I think it's 364 AD, when the Council of Lamsacus, which was a a Macedonian or um, semi-Aryan council, was convened. And at this council, this section of the church, Uh, came to the conclusion that the Holy Spirit... Now, there are different flavors of Macedonianism. There are different flavors of semi-Arianism. That's why there are different names given to them. But generally, they fall into two camps. That the Holy Spirit is either, uh, just like Arianism, that's why it's called semi-Arianism, that the Holy Spirit was a, a creature, a spiritual creature, exalted above... All angels, generally by spiritual creature, they meant he was an angel or something like that, and he was exalted above all angels, not by his his nature, not by his being, but rather only in degrees. So he was basically a super angel, and that's why you can tell it's called super, not super Arianism, it's called semi-Arianism, because it's exactly what Arians believed about Jesus, except they believed that about the Holy Spirit. Most people who were Macedonians believed in the deity and eternity and personality of the Father. They believed in the deity, eternality, and personality of the Son and the equality of those two, but they denied the uh, deity, the equality, the eternity, and the personality of the Spirit. And that's the other section of what we would call pneumatomachians, or spirit fighters. Pneumatos meaning uh, spirit and make, meaning to fight. And so Christians would call this group of people, they would lump all of these different flavors of uh, the same similar heresy under one broad category as spirit fighters. And these spirit fighters um, also believed, some of them, that the Holy Spirit was divine, and we're going to talk a little bit about the difference between divinity and deity, but they believed that the Holy Spirit was divine, but that he was not a person, he was only an influence or a force, much like Jehovah's Witnesses believe today. And so the church convened uh, at the Council of Constantinople and had to add to the Council of Nicaea, because after this Council of Lamsacus, they sent out legates to the Bishop of Rome and... Um, showed them this is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. And the Council of Nicaea only says we believe in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't define how we believe in the Holy Spirit. And that's one of the reasons why I am so obsessed with speaking rightly and accurately about God. Because if you are not clear with your terms, then people can convert and contort your language to mean something that it does not mean. If you were to say the Holy Spirit to a Muslim, many Muslims believe that the Holy Spirit is Gabriel the Archangel. The Holy Spirit is the means by which Allah revealed the Quran to uh, Muhammad, and that was through Gabriel the Archangel. Uh, Many people... uh, um, If you talk to Mormons, they believe that the Holy Spirit is a person and that the Holy Spirit is a God separate from the Father and the Son who are each gods. They are tritheists. As a matter of fact, they're they're polytheists. They believe in in lots and lots and lots of gods, but we can talk about that at a different time. Um, If you talk to a Jehovah's Witness, they would say that the Holy Spirit is only God's impersonal act of force. And so many people can say that they believe in the Holy Spirit. I remember having a conversation with one of my friends, uh, and and I was saying that you have to have the... uh, I remember exactly what it was. It was Mother's Day. And as many of you may know, I work at a flower shop here in town. And she wished me luck, and I said, oh honey, I don't need luck, I have the Holy Ghost. 
And she said, oh, I have the whole... And I said, I wish you luck, because she's not saved. And she says, well, I have the Holy Spirit too. I said, oh, really? Question mark. Um, is he leading you into obedience and conformity to who Jesus is? And there was a dot, 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 probably not. And so you can say Holy Spirit, and to her, it was probably the sensation of the general oneness with all creation. And that's not who the Holy Spirit is. And when it comes to talking about God, we have to be very, very, very pointed with our language. Because the human mind is so wicked and depraved that it can take truths and convert them on the spot. And so this is what happened at the Council of Lamsac, as they said, this is what we believe about the Holy Spirit. Um, they presented it to Bishop Liberius, and uh, he reluctantly said, I think you are within orthodoxy because we, have um, we haven't defined our belief about the Holy Spirit, and so that's fine. Uh, you can believe that, I guess. And then uh, around the Spain, what's modern-day Spain, uh, the spirit-fighting heresy spread. Now this reached the ears of Athanasius, the great, um, the great preacher of the Trinity. He he preached the Trinity against the Arians in the Arian resurgence. Uh, because Arianism, after the Council of Nicaea, still grew. There were lots of councils that were convened with more bishops than were at the Council of Nicaea. And he, at one point, was the only bishop, one of at least one of very few, who held to what we would call the Orthodox doctrine. And so he heard about this, and he wrote a series of letters to Serapion, who was a bishop, and then uh, Basil of Basil of Caesarea also wrote wonderful works called um, the On the Spirit, and those are very very wonderful classics on the Holy Spirit, which I think that you guys should read if that's if that's your thing. And so when we look at, in light of all of that controversy in the fourth century, what was on the main plate of the church fathers in fighting this heresy of Macedonianism, um, we find very interesting things, probably not things that would be new to you, but hopefully uh, in meditating on these things they will add some depth as you ponder who the Holy Spirit is and the importance of the Holy Spirit. Uh, a lot of times, and this is the case with the creeds, um, we do not consider God for the depth uh, that is in him until our faith is attacked or until there is something that shakes our faith in God. And so what the Lord will allow, I believe, is for things to happen so that we will cleave to him and know him better and not take for granted that we have the Holy Spirit and not take for granted that he is working in powerful ways in our midst. And so first of all, let's jump into um, our talk about the Holy Spirit uh, just by defining what Holy Spirit means. Uh, it's an interesting thing to talk about the Holy Spirit because uh, his name in the list of the Trinity seems to be like one of those, one of those, these things are not like the other. You have the Father, the Son, and then it's not the uncle, or it's not Father, Son, and the Mother. It's not Father, Son, and Grandson. It's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And there are some reasons why, based upon my reading from people like Jonathan Edwards and, and John Calvin and other great theologians that talked about this subject matter. Um, but there are three distinct distinguishing factors as to why the Holy Spirit receives in Scripture the name Holy Spirit as opposed to Grandson or the Son. The term Holy Spirit refers to, one, the nature of the Holy Spirit as God, two, the operations of the Holy Spirit, and three, the person of the Holy Spirit as unique from the Father and the Son. The term Holy Spirit first refers to the um, nature of the Holy Spirit, that he is spirit. That means that he is a, a immaterial, supernatural, invisible essence, that he has true being, that really in our modern society, uh, it's a laughable concept that we would believe in the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit can't be measured. He is immense. That means he's not able to be measured because he does not have extension in space. He is of a, a supernatural nature. He is not bound to this creation. As a matter of fact, he's completely separate from this creation, and therefore uh, we cannot trace him 
or um, limit him to our physical, carnal, creaturely categories because he is spirit. He is altogether of a different substance than us. Not only is he spirit, and by the way, him being spirit obviously is not unique to him as the Holy Spirit. The Father is spirit. The Son, before his incarnation, and even still in his divine essence, is spirit. But we see that in him being called the Holy Spirit, that he partakes of the same kind of nature as the Father and the Son. But not only is he spirit, but he is the Holy Spirit. Firstly, I like saying that he's the Holy Spirit because it puts him into a category of uniqueness, just like the Father and the Son. In the Bible, the Father is called the only God the only wise God, the only almighty God. He's called the only God. The one God is usually how the New Testament um, calls the Father. The Son is called the only begotten or the unique Son. And so you have a term of uniqueness for the Son. You have a term of uniqueness for the Father. And the term holy refers to absolute separateness and uniqueness of category from anything else. So you have the one God, the unique Son, and the Holy Spirit. So you have God, who is God, not like other gods. You have the Son, who is Son, not like other sons. And you have Spirit, that is Spirit like no other Spirit. And that's important because the term Ruach in the Old Testament Hebrew and Numa in the New Testament suggests many things other than the Holy Spirit. In the book of Genesis, chapter 8, I think verse 1, I lost my, the first page of my notes, so I, have to, I can't quote off the passages of Scripture. But in Genesis 8, 1, I believe, it says, And the Lord caused a spirit to pass over the waters, this is after the flood, and the waters subsided. It's not saying that the Lord sent the Holy Spirit over the water, it's a breeze. The Holy Spirit sends a wind over the water. Uh, so that the term ruach refers to the wind. It's just a, just a breeze. It encapsulates that. It also talks about the, the spirit of man is called ruach. Um, angels, good angels are called ruach. Bad angels are called ruach. But the Holy Spirit is a spirit that is in a category of his own. He is called the spirit of holiness in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. He is the spirit who transmits the very holiness of God. And as we will see a little bit later, that the Holy Spirit is actually another term just for God. When, when the Bible says, the spirit of the Lord... It's simply another way of saying the Lord. When the Bible says the Spirit of God, it's referring to God himself. Uh, it's only refer refer referring to him in a different way. And so we have the Spirit of God, the term Holy Spirit, defining the nature of the Holy Spirit. Not only does it define the nature of the Holy Spirit, but the term defines the operations of the Holy Spirit. And I said, because that term ruach has the idea of a breeze, it, it really encapsulates the power and vitality of how air moves. It's like when you breathe in and you feel that sensation of vitality coming into your body through breathing. That's what that term indicates. And so it describes not just the nature of the spirit, but how he operates. The spirit is the dynamic worker. In the Trinity, he does the divine operations. He is the main and immediate actor of the divine will. He does the communicating of the divine attributes. He, with power, affects the divine will upon creation. And not only is he the primary or immediate actor of the divine attributes, but he is called holy because everything which he does is holy. Um, I love this quote by Jonathan Edwards in his work. Uh, it's called 
pneumatologia. Very good. And it says this. The Spirit of God, then, is thus frequently and almost constantly called holy, to attest that all the works of God, whereof he is the immediate operator, are holy. For it is the work of the Spirit to harden and blind obstinate sinners, as well as to sanctify the elect. And his acting in one is no less holy than in the other, although holiness be not the effect of it in the objects. The Holy Spirit is called, this is my, my, my notes, I put, he is called the Holy Spirit because he is the dynamic execution of the divine will. And so his operation is holy, whether or not, as, as uh, Edward says, his ends produce holiness. So, he is holy in the hardening of a sinner, as he is holy in the sanctifying of a sinner. His operations are holy in the healing of a human body, as well as in leaving the human body in illness and sanctifying the spirit of a human body. His operation is equally as holy in the um, dynamic and supernatural flashy operations of the spirit as it is in the subtle what I like how the reformers said it, the secret operations of the Spirit. Equally as holy. He is equally as holy as when he was coming upon David, and when he was coming upon Jephthah, and when he was coming upon Isaiah, um, or Amasai. And he's just as holy when he was leaving Saul so that an evil spirit from the Lord could come upon him. All of his operations are holy. Because everything that God does is holy. Not only does it describe his nature and his uh, operations, but it also defines his person in distinction from the Father and the Son. Um, as I said, it, the, the triad is not called the Father, the Son, and the Grandson. And it's not called the Father, the Son, and, and the Mother. It's the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And this is describing, many theologians would say, it's describing the mode of the Spirit's origination. That, just like we talked about with the Son, um, the Father in the Trinity is what we call the uh, Fons Trinitate. He is the fountain of all of the divine essence um, in the Trinity. So that he is the source from all of eternity of deity. And that source is generated, when it is generated, it produces from all of eternity the sun. So the sun's mode of origin eternally. We talked about a few weeks ago how the sun, how his origination is a byproduct of God the Father's um, overflowing attributes, but it is not a temporal relationship, and it's not an ontological relationship. That means it didn't happen at a point in time, and it does not lessen the being. Just in, so just to give you an example, um, we talked about the Son being the glory of God the Father. Uh, as the book of Hebrews says, he's the brightness of his glory. And so, God, the Father, is the glorious God. And as long as the Father has been glorious, the Son has been there to be the brightness of His glory. And so, as long as the Father has been glorious, which is from all of eternity, the Son has been present to be the brightness of that glory, which is from all of eternity. So it can't be a temporal relationship. And as a matter of fact, the Father depends on the Son for His attribute of glory, because without the Son, God would cease to be God, because God, by His very definition, is glorious. And therefore, it can't be an ontological or a, a difference or distinction in being or worth or value, because God's very nature as God is wrapped up in the being of the Son. And so this generation is a logical relationship between Father and Son, but it's not something that began in time, and it's not something that makes the Son less than the Father. And likewise, the Spirit is not generated, but 
It's called by a few different names by theologians. He's spirated, which means breathed out. The spirit is con- because the term spirit has this idea of being the breath of God. So just like air is our breath, it is our very life force. The spirit is the very life force of the divine nature. It, the spirit is described as the breath of God, and so the spirit is an eternal. <sighs> From God. Eternally. And then there becomes the controversy of, okay, does the Spirit just come from God the Father alone? Or does the Spirit come from the Father and the Son? And that's a controversy that caused the um, the Great Schism in 1054. But uh, I really think, as I've been reading over that controversy, it really does not seem... Uh, it, it really shouldn't have split the church, but the Great Schism was due to many other factors and then just whether the Spirit proceeded from the Father and the Son or just the Father. But we can talk about that at a different time. Um, so, it defer- so the term Holy Spirit refers to the um, nature of the Spirit as um, completely supernatural and immaterial. It refers to the operations of the Spirit as dynamic and completely pure and holy in its ends, and refers to the distinction between Father and Son and the relationship that he has as not being generated, but rather as being, as Augustine put it, the bond of love between the Father and the Son, or he's the one who communicates the Father, the divine nature of the Father and the Son back and forth to one another from all of eternity. And so that is a beautiful reality. And so, now that we've looked at kind of the words of the Holy Spirit, let's look at what the councils wanted to define in particular in defending the Holy Spirit. Uh, first of all, they use the interesting term Lord to define the Spirit. Um, because, and it's interesting because nowhere in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit defined as the Lord. I, I used to think that when they said the Lord, the giver of life, that they were making a quotation from Second uh, Corinthians 3. But when you look at the context of Second Corinthians 3, when it says, now the Lord is the Spirit, it seems to be, and, and this becomes odd theologically to explain, but it seems to be describing Christ. It seems to be describing the Son as being the Spirit, and it's not saying that the Son is the Holy Spirit, but it's similar to what Paul talks about in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, when uh, the Bible says that the first man, Adam, was made a living soul, and the second man, uh, Jesus, was made a quickening spirit. And it's not saying that he was made the Holy Spirit. It's saying that the second man, when he was resurrected, was so united with the Holy Spirit and identified with the Holy Spirit that now he has power to give life with the power with which the Spirit gives life. It's a beautiful doctrine uh, that really deepens what the resurrection and and more so the ascension of Jesus Christ is about. Uh, But it's not describing the Holy Spirit there in 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians rather, chapter 3. I believe that what the church fathers were doing is one, they were summarizing all that the Old Testament was saying about God. As we said earlier, the term Holy Spirit uh, uh, refers to the spirit of one who is holy. It's the spirit, the the eternal divine essence of the Holy One. Now we know, the Old Testament says this many times, it's that the Lord God alone is the Holy One. And the Lord God is Spirit. And so Holy Spirit in the Old Testament, or the Spirit of the Lord, when you read in multiple places, that is merely a synonym for the Lord. So when it says, and the Spirit of the Lord did such and such. As a matter of fact, let's read... Um, well, let me direct you to some places, like Genesis 1-2, where it says um, that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the face of the deep. Now, when we read that, we're really good Trinitarians, and I'm glad that we're good Trinitarians. We say that the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep, uh, 
And what that means is that the Holy Spirit um, was operating and he was, he was hovering over all the chaos. But for a person who was a Jew uh, way back in the 16th century before the Lord, before the doctrine of the Trinity was revealed in the person of Jesus being incarnate in the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, when a person heard, and the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the deep, they wouldn't have said, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. In a lot of poetic literature, and I have a list of different things here, and I had people read them on Sunday, and it would take me too much time to flip through my Bible, especially because it's a new one that Scott gave me. And uh, it's, since it's new, you know that uh, you can't find nothing in a new Bible. And then it has the deuterocanonical stuff, and so that kind of throws off, because I'm like, where's Luke? And then I'm in Maccabees. And so it gets a little confusing, and so it would take a long time for me to find all the references. But especially in poetic literature, when you go into the Psalms, when it says the Spirit of the Lord, it's usually using the Spirit of the Lord in parallel with the Lord himself. Uh, One passage that I have in my list is um, is in 2 Samuel, where it says, David is on his deathbed, and he's saying this, he says, The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. The God of Israel is upon, his words are upon my lips. And that phrase um, uh, is what we call a parallelism, a Hebrew, a Hebrew parallelism, and that's equating Spirit of the Lord and God of Israel. So in David's mind, when he says that, the Spirit of the Lord and the God of Israel are the same. It's not... The Spirit of the Lord over here, and the God of Israel, the second person over here. The Spirit of the Lord is the God of Israel. And so what the early church fathers did, I think, is they are summarizing what the Old Testament is communicating about the Holy Spirit. Second of all, um, the Holy, they're doing something interesting that they also did with the Father. Because, I, I quoted this earlier... Uh, the counts of the excuse me Nicene Creed says, uh, "We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the Maker of heaven and earth." And then they say, "Of all things visible and invisible." Now that's interesting, because nowhere in the New Testament does the Bible say that the Father created all things visible and invisible. That's a quote from Colossians one that's actually being made about the Son, but the early fathers recognized the unity of the Father, Son, and Spirit to be such that they could take attributes and actions that are attributed, uh, that are attributed to one person in the Trinity and attribute them to another person in the Trinity. So they are saying that the Father does what the Son does in order to affirm that the Father just isn't this amorphous, aloof, um, deity in the sky who has nothing to do with the physical creation, uh, but rather he is intrinsically and imminently involved in his creation. And they do the same thing here while talking about the Holy Spirit. They are saying that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, taking that term from the New Testament, which is specifically and usually, unless they're quoting from the Old Testament, reserved for the Lord Jesus. We talked about a few weeks ago how Lord encompasses the covenant name of God. It, it is, uh, it's, a, it's a placeholder for the tetragrammaton, for uh, what's translated as the Lord in all caps in your Bible. I'm, I, or Yahweh. I'm a little uncomfortable with saying the name uh, I can say it, obviously. I'm a little uncomfortable saying it. I try not to say it too often. But um, the Lord, it's, it's communicating the Lord, the personal name of God. And so when they took this name from Jesus from the Old Testament and attributed it to the Holy Spirit, what they were first trying to communicate is, one, that the Holy Spirit is deity. Now, I said that there is a difference between deity and divinity. Deity, excuse me, divinity means it's reflective, something that's reflective of the divine attributes. So when you go to the um, to a restaurant and you have a piece of pie from the restaurant and you say, oh honey, that was just, that pie was just divine. What you're saying about the pie is not that the pie is God, but that the pie reflects something about, I don't know, the delicious nature of God. 
but deity, on the other hand, refers to the very essence of being God. Deity is another word of saying Godhead, and Godhead is another way of saying Godness. And when they attribute this term Lord to the Holy Spirit, they are saying that he has all of the Godness to him. Everything that God is, everything that the Lord of the Old Testament is, he is the Lord. Because the God of the Old Testament is not just the Father. The God of the Old Testament is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Trinity did not begin to exist in Matthew 1. The Spirit began to exist before Genesis 1. That's why the prophets in the New Testament could look back and say in John 12, when Isaiah has his temple vision, that Isaiah beheld Jesus' glory when he said, seeing they will not see, hearing they will not hear, etc., uh, etc. Et he says that was Jesus on the throne. And then later, Paul says, or earlier if you want to look historically, but anyway, Paul says that the Holy Spirit said, seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not hear. Why? Because even in that instance, in Isaiah, the Trinity was present because God was present, and God has always been Trinity. And the Spirit is the Lord. He is that true deity. Not just, he's not just a reflection. He's not just the power of God. He's not just the force of God. He is true deity. Not only is he true deity, but using the term Lord makes reference to the personhood of the Holy Spirit. That not only is he not just a divine force, but he is a, um, a, a person who possesses Godhead. He is a, an individual. He has a will. Let me, because I done got ahead of myself here, and I have to find myself in my notes. He has a will. John 3, 8 says the spirit blows, excuse me, the wind blows where he wills. You see, you hear him, but you don't see him. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. The book of 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, says the spirit gives gifts according to his own will. And as a matter of fact, that's a refrain in 1 Corinthians 12. And he gives the gift of prophecy to his own will, by his own will. He gives the gift of miracles by his own will. He gives the gift of this other third thing by his own will. The Spirit has a will. And not only is it a will, but because he's the Holy Spirit, he is the Spirit of God, it is a divine and sovereign will. It is not a will that is subject to your creaturely efforts. It is a will that does what he wants when he wants to do it. The Spirit is not a force. He's not key. He's not the world soul. This is not Dragon Ball Z. You can't throw, away the, throw around the Holy Spirit like fireballs whenever you want. You do what the Spirit wants you to do and not the other way around. You can ask the Spirit to do something for you. You can depend upon the Spirit to do something for you, but at the end of the day, the Spirit does things according to His sovereign, and I would even say arbitrary will. Now, when I say arbitrary, I don't mean arbitrary in the, in the way that human beings are arbitrary. When we're arbitrary, it's from capriciousness or some sort of, uh, some sort of you know, effect on the outside of us. When I say arbitrary of any person in the Godhead, that means that nothing is the determining factor of the willing of the Spirit apart from His own desire. And what that should cause in us is an utter dependence on the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's astounding to me how there are people who seem to argue in a way opposite uh, than the Bible argues. They'll say, well, if, if God is sovereign then why should I pray? And if God is sovereign, then why should I um, evangelize? And if God is sovereign, then why should we do missions? And at least in my reading, and I'm not right 
about everything. But at least in my reading, it seems that the Bible argues opposite of that. It seems to argue that because the Spirit is sovereign, Paul doesn't say in, in um, Philippians 2, well, you just, you know, you stay at home and you just do whatever you want to do and you can live ungodly because God is at work in you to both will and to do. That's not what he says. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling because God is at work within you to will and to do. That the sovereign work of God, that without which you will not will and will not do, is the reason why you work. It doesn't work against you working. It's the reason why you work. Paul doesn't say to Timothy, oh, well, you know, God has his elect, so I'm just going to stay at home and, and read newspapers. No, he says, I suffer all things for the sake of the elect. He recognizes that God has a people and that the Spirit is going to save through the preaching of the gospel those whom he will. And it's because of the sovereign work of the Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, which is the means that he has ordained, that he does that. And, and we don't pray. Uh, and it's not a, a hindrance to prayer. It's a reason because of prayer. I can't trust God to... I, I mean, I have loved ones right now who aren't saved. And if I was just trusting God to just woo people out of their sinfulness... I, I mean, the Holy Spirit has done all that he can do. But if I recognize that the Spirit of the living God overcomes the wicked heart of a sinner, I can trust that the Spirit will bring about his sovereign, gracious will in those people that I pray for, if he wills it. If and when he wills it. And so the Spirit has a will. That's what I went on that tangent to uh, talk about. Not only does he have a will, because he is a person, the Bible describes him as having emotions. The Spirit, according to Ephesians 3, can be grieved. The Spirit can be insulted, according to Hebrews 10. The Spirit can be blasphemed, according to Mark uh, 3. This, you can... Um, yeah, so the Spirit has, he has emotions, which means, and I'm trying to say the application for the last part, but I just can't help myself, which means that we should be more concerned about the emotional life of God who is in our midst. God, whose temple we are. We should be more concerned about what God feels concerning us than our feelings concerning us. Uh, I know a lot of people, um, you know, I'm dealing with something in my life right now, where you're, we're trying to call someone to repentance, and their response is, well, I just want to be happy. I just want to be happy. Okay, but when does God get to be happy with you? Well, I just want to keep living, the, being in this relationship because I want to be happy, but God's not pleased with you. Well, you know, I just want to fornicate because I want to be happy. But God's not pleased with it. Well, I just want to gossip because, you know, it's just fun to gossip. And, and I just really enjoy gossip. But, but God doesn't enjoy that. The Spirit doesn't enjoy that. It actually grieves the Holy Spirit. It actually makes the Holy Spirit kind of angry. And we have to be very careful because it's that continuous action of disregarding and not caring about what the Spirit of God cares about that, will, that can lead to the ultimate blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. I think that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is very simple. It is, at, it is a point in a person's life when they resist the work of the Holy Spirit and grieve him to such a point where he leaves and does not come back. Because he's sovereign. He can choose to leave and not come back. And it doesn't have to, he doesn't have to wait until you die. The Bible says that Esau sought repentance with tears but couldn't get it. Why? Because the Spirit was gone, which should make us very, very nervous as we go about our lives. And sometimes we, we, I, let's talk about me, I trifle with things that God hates. And whenever I indulge in my sinful passions, what I'm telling the Spirit is, okay, you can leave now. You can leave now. 
And whenever I dismiss the Spirit, He does not have to come back. And so if we can repent with our whole heart, we should, we should, we should cherish that moment because repentance is not something that the Spirit has to work in us. Not only does He have a mind, not only does He have emotion, excuse me, not only does He have a will, not only does He have emotions, but the Spirit has a mind. First uh, Corinthians, let me turn here in my Bible. I kind of know where that one is in my Bible. Let's see here. First um, Corinthians, the second chapter. Starting at the 10th verse. The beautiful passage of scripture. Of course, I love the Bible, so, you know. People say that, <laughs> I love this passage of scripture. And people tell me, you just love every passage of scripture, and so it doesn't really mean anything at that point. Uh, chat, verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything. Now, that's, a, that's an act of the intellect. You don't, in, impersonal active forces don't search. You have to have a mind to search. The Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that is within? So also no one comprehends what is truly God's except the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God comprehends that which is God's. Um, now we have not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. And we speak of these things in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught, so the Spirit teaches, uh, by the Spirit, interpreting spirit things to those who are spiritual. So the Spirit teaches, and he teaches by interpreting. That, that's a, that's an, op, an, an action of a spirit being. Uh, an intellectual being, not just a spirit being. We've talked about that. Those who are unspiritual do not receive the gifts of God's Spirit, for they are foolishness to them, and they are unable to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Those who are spiritual discern all things, and they are themselves subject to no one else's scrutiny. For who has known the mind of the Lord uh, so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. And so the Spirit here, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians, teaches us the secret things that are in the mind of God, which then leaves us with the question of, are you listening and since I'm the only one here, Anthony, are you listening to what the Spirit of God is teaching you as you read His Word? And that's, and that's real. That's real. So He is the Lord because He is truly deity, the living God. He's the one true and living God. He fully possesses the divine nature. And because He is personal, because the Lord... And the God of Israel is a personal being. Why did they define him as the spirit, as the giver of life? Because it says he's the Lord, he's the giver of life. Why did they define him as the giver of life? Because it is the spirits, we talked about last time when I was talking about the sun, we talked about economy, the economy of the Godhead. We talked about the economy of creation. Uh, the Father uh, decrees, the Son, decree is better used to talk about predestination, but for all intents and purposes, I can't think of a better word right now. So the Father decrees, the Son executes, and the Spirit communicates that, that impulsive decree to the Son in the Godhead. Uh, in redemption, the, well, redemption is what I'm going to talk about. So in prayer, the Father is the terminator. He receives, ends with him. The Son is the mediator. And the Spirit is the initiator. He prompts us to pray. He, he's who conforms us so that our wills are such that God will actually want to answer our prayers. And in redemption, it is God who decrees, that's a better word, the Son obtains eternal redemption according to the book of Hebrews, and the Spirit applies. And it is that work of application that is the giving of life. Uh, Jesus says, the Lord Jesus says in John 6, it is the spirit that gives life, and the flesh uh, um, uh, profits nothing. Uh, 
The book of Second uh, Corinthians in the third chapter says, uh, the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. It is the spirit's proper um, role within the redemption of the believer to give life to the believer. You didn't give your own self life. You didn't open your own eyes. We were dead in sins and trespasses. And it's the Spirit who came and, and entered into us. I love the phrase in, in the book of Ezekiel. He, talk, he uses this term over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, it reinforces um, the idea of the Spirit being synonymous with the Lord. Because for a few chapters, he doesn't say the Lord. He just says, and the Spirit entered into me and set me up on my feet. And that's what the Spirit does for us. When we were dead in sins and trespasses, he entered into us and set us on our feet. And we should be grateful for that because he doesn't have to do that. And that is his merciful, sovereign prerogative. And, and, and it was nothing about you that was so attractive or so smart or so cute or so white or so black or so Asian that made the Spirit give you life. It was because the Spirit blew wherever He wanted to blow and He pleased to blow on you. Praise God. It was a powerful time. So to close our time, I don't have much time left and I don't want to go on too long. Let's talk about how one worships and glorifies the Holy Spirit. Because the Creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit. The, the Constantinopolitan Creed says, we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is also worshipped and glorified. In the Latin of the Creed, it means not only that he's also worshipped and glorified, it's literally, he is worshipped and glorified in a similar way. That he receives the same worship and the same glory that the Father and Son do. But I would argue the way we worship the Holy Spirit is not the same way that we worship the Son. And it's not the same way that we worship the Father. If you look in the Bible, you will find no prayers to the Holy Spirit. None. I think there are, there are a few there are a few prayers to Jesus, but you will find no prayers to the Holy Spirit. And the reason why there are no prayers to the Holy Spirit is because of the Spirit's choice as to how He would operate in redemption and even in the economy of worship itself. That the Spirit decided in eternity that He would not be the direct object of worship but that he would be the one who generates worship so that what glorifies the Spirit most is... I actually wrote something down, and let me say this because I wrote it down in, in a way that I think is clear. I put, the Spirit is glorified when the purposes of his dispensation are most fulfilled in us. So the reason, when the reason for why the Spirit of God was given is fulfilled in us, then the Spirit receives glory. Let's, let's take a look. John 14, 15, and 16 all have statements about the Holy Spirit and why the Spirit is given. And I believe that when these things happen in us, the Spirit receives the most glory. John 14, 23 and 25 says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. Notice, keep that, um, the theme in this verse is, few verses is, uh, keeping, keeping his words. And my Father will love him, and will come to him, and make our, and we will come to him, and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Now, this passage can be used to defend the inspiration of the scriptures, which actually this section of the Nicene Creed, uh, Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, um, talk touches on. It says he has he has spoken by the prophets, 
which is kind of a slight thing of saying we believe that the Bible is inspired of God. But more than, it's just that the, that the apostles remember what Jesus has said so that they can teach it to us. It is saying that Jesus commands that he has spoken. This will be repeated later on, I think in chapter 16. The commands, the Spirit causes us to remember in, in instances of moment. When we need to remember what Jesus said, the Spirit causes us to remember that. When we're struggling in sin, the Spirit causes us to remember what Jesus said. When we are ministering to people who need the Lord and we're not sure what to say, the Spirit causes us to remember. And when we remember what Jesus has said to us, and we act upon that remembering what Jesus has said to us, the Spirit receives glory. Chapter 15 says, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, that was that controversial um, uh, verse that split the church, the largest church split in history, he will bear witness about me, and you also will, will bear witness. That's the focus. Will bear witness. Because you have been with me from the beginning. So when we bear witness about Jesus... We fulfill the purposes of the Holy Spirit, and I believe that the Spirit in that receives glory. Chapter 16 says, in verses... Oh dear. Uh, 12 and 15. says this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of Truth comes, He will guide you into the truth, and will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, and He will take that which is of Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine. Therefore I said that he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So the Spirit declaring that which is true and us receiving what the Spirit declares and thus the Spirit glorifying Jesus in the declaration of the truth is what glorifies the Spirit when we respond to that by doing what John says in chapter 3 verse 21 he that does the truth comes to the light, and that his deeds may be manifest that they were wrought in God. The Spirit communicates or declares the truth of Jesus to us that we might do the truth. And when we do the truth, um, the Spirit is glorified. And so let me just end our little lesson with some, I guess, questions or challenges, you could call them. I have here, are you searching for the Spirit um, in the awesome and extraordinary operations, or are you leaning in to the ordinary secret leadings and promptings? I mentioned earlier that the Holy Spirit, and if you think about the history of the Bible, think about the Old Testament. The Old Testament covers 2,000 years of history from Adam, I think it's 2,000 years, uh, 4,000 years, 4,000 years from Adam all the way until Jesus. And the Spirit, uh, the Bible really encompasses very small portions of that. It, it talks about or explains very small portions of that. And even in the biblical record, there's not a lot of miraculous operation. There's some. It seems like there's a lot because the Bible you know, covers over thousands of years in like a page. But there's not that much extraordinary operations of the Spirit. The Spirit dealt with the people of God from Genesis to Malachi. And I would say um, from Matthew until now, he deals with us more through subtle and secret operations of leading, through giving us impulses to live godly uh, by leading us and, and, and drawing us to obedience. 
the Spirit is more at work in the simple, quiet, secret, everyday operations than he is at work in the flashy, what we would consider miraculous operations. Secondly, is your Christian walk described by resisting the will, the mind, or the emotions of the Spirit? Or is it in agreement and submission to his mind and his will? Is your life marked by reading the Word and thinking thoughts after the Spirit, or reading the Word and thinking thoughts over the Holy Spirit? Um, when I was studying on my own the, the big, I call the Constantinopolitan Creed, uh, the ultimate Pokemon evolution of the Apostles' Creed, when I was studying that, um, I said, I remember writing down, I don't know where that journal is, I said, heresy, the root of what heresy is, it's talking over the Holy Spirit when he speaks. The Holy Spirit says, we're going to go this way. Oh, no, I think I'm going to go this way. Uh, the Spirit says this thing about, no, I, I feel like I'm going to think this way about marriage. And the Spirit says this way about how you should treat your husband. Oh, no, honey, I think I'm going to treat, treat my husband this way. You know, and, and the root of every heresy is as the Holy Spirit is revealing who he is and who Jesus is and who God is, instead of submitting to it and thinking thoughts after you think you have a better thought than the Holy Spirit. And so, are we more concerned about thinking thoughts after him and responding to what he desires and, and uh, what he thinks, or are we the priority? And lastly, do you honor the Holy Spirit by humbly recognizing his sovereign directive in your life? Are you putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit? Are you walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lust of the flesh? Are you exercising your dependence on the vivifying power, the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit to the ordinary miracle of regeneration of those from the dead, the objects of the wrath of God? Um, you know, are we trusting? Are we trusting the Holy Spirit's work as the giver of life? Are you, or even me, are we trusting? That, are we trusting the Spirit to do what He said He will do? With like I said earlier, I have people. Had I've had to even just today, uh, just kind of rough in some places. Um, just dealing with different people in my life that are not living for the Lord. And I have to constantly remind myself um, that it's not my arguing that's going to help save a person. It's not my letter writing that's going to help save a person. But unless the Lord blows on him... Uh, Nothing will happen. And so we have to train ourselves to lean and depend on the sovereign, good, blessed, holy work of the Holy Spirit. And really, not try to be the Holy Spirit, um, which is always very tempting and something we have to constantly crucify. Uh, let me pray for us. And then, ooh, let me see how much time I got. Ooh, I only went over three minutes. Praise God. All right. Um, let me pray and then we'll be done. Um, Father God, I ask that you would use these uh, feeble efforts of mine as a means of you bringing about your glorious work to pass in the lives of these your people. I pray that we would not take your spirit for granted, but rejoice that the life that we have in your Son has been communicated to us by 
the merciful and sovereign ministry of the Spirit. May we live in such a way that does not grieve Him. May we live in such a way that does not blaspheme Him. May we live in such a way that does not provoke Him. May we live in such a way uh, that does not insult Him. Lord, may we bring Him glory through obeying every impulse. And that obedience is only possible by the effectual working of His power. I ask that you would send all of us a greater measure of your Spirit so that we can live for you through Jesus Christ our Lord, with whom you and the Holy Spirit live and reign, one God forever and ever. Amen.